Hey everybody, welcome to EdBeat. Patrick and I, this is, what is this Patrick? This is episode 26 you have just in 26 big ones. Woo! We're gonna take a break for the holidays because you know, even though education coverage never stops, we still too want to enjoy our family and friends over the holiday season. So this is the big one for the year. That's right. And as soon as the camera stops rolling, we start a wassailing. <laughs> I have to, what is was a wassailing really? I, I never did remember that. Okay, Drink, so. Drinking. Yeah. Oh, where's my, <sighs> my tea, man. Okay, we're gonna have to do this hardcore old fashioned way with no tea or liquids. We can do this. I believe in you. You are so not hardcore. All right, Patrick. So it is the end of the year. There's been a lot going on. Christmas has not happened yet as of the taping of this episode, but man, we just had a huge budget passed with a big chunk of money for education. You've been covering a lot of different issues. Money toward education is one of those things. So in spite of the fact that we may have many things on our agenda to speak of, any sort of big takeaways from the passage of the budget and what that looks like for education? Yes. So I've done a series of stories, I've done four stories on uh, the education budget. We've done a general overview, and then we've analyzed a couple of the bigger ticket line items and new programs. So kind of the top headline number is $384 million. That's how much the Cayman Islands government is giving to the Ministry of Education to spend over the next two years. So it's about $190 million a year or $200 million if you could find other items in the budget related to education. So as usual, education is the single biggest area of funding for the public sector. It's more, you know, healthcare would be second, and then you go down to the other various responsibilities. In terms of overall spending in the education budget, the top item is $75 million that are earmarked for capital projects. So that's in layman's terms, that's construction. And of course, the biggest project is the new John Gray High School. And then there's other expansions in the buildings at other schools, including at a couple of the primary schools where they want to build, build new classroom blocks to accommodate a new um, nursery program, which would be, say, uh, for like three-year-olds. A few years ago, the government expanded to reception. So they went down, this used to start at year one. Then they started reception, which is about, you know, kids who are four and five, and then now they want to add on public nursery for three and four. But, um, you know, as if you've been following our coverage, you'll see that some of the schools can't physically accommodate more students or just don't have the appropriate number of classrooms. So you, you have to build it if you want the kids to come. And there's also going to be a new building at um, Lehman Scott High School on the Brack. So it's been a bit since I've been to the Brack. Frankly, I haven't traveled much <laughs> in the past couple of years. But last I went, you could see it was it was bursting at the seams a bit. So it, it does make sense to do. Although the population is fairly small, you know, academically, the kids do great. And I, I did I could see it. You know, I could say, yeah, they could use some room here and there. Well, the preschool programs, it, it's really an interesting concept from my perspective, because there's this idea for me that government has certain responsibilities that it is supposed to take on or is mandated to take on, and then others that I'm not sure about. Um, and this is not me making judgment on it, by the way. I just private sector has traditionally handled that component of preschool education. And so it's interesting to me that the choice would be to take this on as opposed to perhaps, you know, 
funding voucher, providing vouchers, et cetera, for people to use private preschools. So it's just an interesting choice. I'd be interested in learning more about why that choice was made. Are there efficiencies or is it, for me, any new project comes with new complications, right? And so having to manage even more people and even more programs does seem a lot. So I I definitely would be interested in finding out, you know, why is it necessary? How's it going to work? Yeah, and it's kind of, it's kind of the an overarching issue throughout all the years of education is you know do you, you have choices right like are you going to keep investing in um, new buildings or buildings that need updating do you keep increasing your op- annual operation spend on the public school system but Cayman has such a robust private sector mm-hmm. does it make sense to outsource some of yeah. these functions uh, through through vouchers? or even you know, making direct contributions to schools funding directly from the public, which is something they actually are doing in the new budget. And people, people talk a lot about it, how private schools get government funding. It's, it's a lot of money, but it's not, it's not a lot of money compared to the huge uh, bucket. So it's, 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 a, it's really a drop in the bucket. So if you have you know, $190 million budget uh, annual spend on education, the private schools have typically gotten, I did an analysis on this, which is why I know, private schools have historically gotten about a million dollars a year. And then in the waning years of the progressive administration, they started cutting it down from a million to 500,000 to 250,000. And then in 2020, it was supposed to be zeroed out. So the private schools were, were on their own, but then COVID hit. So yeah, since COVID hit, they've, everything. they've increased it. So the private schools, it's a grant program going to 19 different private schools. Uh, so for this current year, they're distributing a million dollars to the schools total. And then um, over the next two years, it'll be $2 million per year. So, so they're doubling that. What's interesting to me is each school gets about $50,000 this year and about $100,000 next year. And that's regardless of the number of students that are in the schools. So let's say some a smaller school like Cayman Learning Center, which has one to 25, they, they give you ranges, right? So they have 25 or fewer students in primary and sec- or secondary level. They get the same amount of money as Cayman International School, which has 600 to 1,100 students mm. in primary and secondary. I don't know why that's done, uh, but that, that, that's how they have the purchase agreements uh, outlined. And then there's another bucket of funding that could potentially go to private schools, and it's called the private and public school grants. And so this is a pool of money that schools, uh, either government or private sector, can apply to apply for funding if they're holding an event or if they have initiative or, or a program or project that they need funding for. So this year they're spending $380,000 on it, and but they're bumping that to $1.4 million per year in the next two years. So that's just some of the new programs they have or increased enhanced programs they have in the education budget. The other big ticket item is it's a bigger ticket and this is the school lunch program. So the government's estimating that it's gonna spend more than $25 million on the school meals program this semester and then the next two years. So for 2.5 years, 25 million. And that amount is gonna grow as they bring on, because right now it's only in the primary schools. Mm-hmm. And they're going to add in the secondary schools, which effectively doubles it. So when it's up and running in full in the year 2023, $15 million a year. 
and I think it's of interest how they've decided, because there was a question for me, like, how are you going to allocate the funding for these meals? Because, you know, there's no such right. thing as free lunch. Uh, and in a variety of vendors, you know, there's kind of a patchwork, or you could say organic or patchwork approach to um, running school canteens. Sometimes yeah. the PTAs just handled it themselves. Other times, you know, they just contracted out to vindicate, like uh, say Mise and Plaza mm -hmm. has really focused on this for the past in a number of years and is, is the, the company that provides the most meals to the most number of schools, for example. So what the government has done is they have separate purchase agreements with each entity that serves each school. So some of these agreements are with a company and some are with the, the PTA group. And what they've done is they've set kind of a ceiling. So Mise en Place serves about 2,000, will serve about 2,000 students. So they can charge up to, I'm looking at my notes, like 5.8 5 million or something. But, um, and then whereas the, the smallest vendor is a company called Paradise that is on the BRAC and they're serving mm -hmm. like 70 students. So their ceiling is like 230,000. And every, every I, I checked this with, you know, using the powers of division <laughs> and, you know, every, um, every company is getting paid about the same amount per student. And so oh, what okay. they do is they say each, this is the maximum amount of money that you can get now. And then the, the vendors will, will bill, I think it's on a, a every two week basis or something. And so they say, listen, we serve 500 breakfasts, 500 lunches, and a thousand snacks and 2000 drinks. And then there's a dollar amount associated with a breakfast, a lunch and a, and a drink. So they only get paid for the actual food and that they provide. What's interesting for me with the government budget is just overall stepping way out is the budget keeps increasing, you know, year after year after year, I think for the past 10 years. So next year's budget is going to increase by 6% over the, the previous year. And then the next year it's going to increase another 7%, but, but they're serving the same number of students. Hmm. So so they, they anticipate they're, they're going to serve the same number. You know, the, the school system itself isn't growing. They're spending more per student. Oh, I and, see. Yeah. And uh, right now, the Ministry of Education has 968 full-time equivalent employees. So it's, it's the largest, it's one of the largest single areas of government, as you might expect. So in 2023, they want to increase the headcount by 11%. Okay. So, so they're going to increase staff by another 11% in 2023. That's what, that's what they project. Um, so, you know, it's easy to see where the increased operating expenses go. And then when you combine that with the construction projects going on, this is why spending on education is going up. So you've kind of broken down the, you know, where it's going and why. And of course, some of the questions that, that will end up getting asked as we go along here, it, particularly because, you know, this is what the auditor generals do. It's a lot about value for money, but I imagine it is challenging to question funds spent on education, right? Because even if you said to me, it's the same amount of students, but we're having more teachers or more support staff, mm -hmm. politically speaking, I, I'll argue all day long. You can say to me, we're spending more. And I'll be like, yep, we are. That's good. Good for me. <laughs> good for me if I was running for office. Because it's a, in theory, what you're doing is spending more to make it better for each student. And so this is the hardest case to make for your overspending on education, right? I just, 
I'm like, I don't yeah. even see how you can get a, criticize it and get away with it. But it, and Jim, Jim Urquhart said in an interview, and I didn't, I didn't use the quote, but it's good. He said, if you think education's expensive, try ignorance. I love that quote. Yeah, it's one of the best. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. No, I hope it's present for me because this is when it came out last year, annual education data report comes out and they really have, you know, all the information. So they have, they have information on testing and on, you know, in, at the primary level, at the secondary level, uh, all the head counts, all, all the numbers that you would want for the public schools. A lot of that information isn't available for the private schools, right. even though in the spring they said they were going to try to get private schools to share more of this information. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what is, comes out in the data report. And I guess it'll become like an annual tradition at the beginning of the year starts off with a series of analyses on what's in the education data report. Yeah. I mean, it gives us an idea. Super excited about it. It's a Christmas present for me. I know he can't wait. No, it's, but it's, I I think it's always good to look at and see kind of where we are. Right. And I don't, I don't know if there's more you wanted to talk about on this subject, but I do not want to forget to mention because I kept disappearing from the live streams and trying to pop in because the, both of the high school graduations happened in the same week, a couple of days apart. And so I was helping with some live streaming stuff on that. And it was, it was a challenge (laughs) because it was, it was, it was kind of a last minute thing. There was a, a conflict with parliament going on at the same time. So um, I was definitely in the throes of plugging cables in and, and trying to figure out where the internet was coming in, coming on. So I spent a bit of time and it was so, okay, that part was stressful, but it was really interesting to hear the principals from both schools and the students from both schools. I mean, there's always a kind of energy and excitement about graduation, right? Always. And I, because I was a little bit behind the scenes, I could see some of the dynamic between the schools and the students who are graduating and their teachers. And some students had been away and came back for graduation. So it was really a lovely experience from an um, just kind of emotional human observance perspective. But when you see the sheer numbers of students who are graduating at one point, you know, in time, it gives you a sense of the magnitude of the work that's being done in these two schools. I mean, you know, we're quick to criticize and beat people up and I get that, but man, that's a lot of students with a lot of individual needs, a lot of tests to take, a lot of stuff to grade. And, you know, both of the principals were really, I think you could see them. They were, they were, they were touched at the success of some of the students and their test scores, as particularly with some of the challenges they faced in the past, you know, year and a half, two years here. Yeah. And for those of us who weren't lucky enough to be crawling through the air ducts and, you know, <laughs> acting like Chewbacca on the Millennium Falcon trying to make things work. That was, um, there was wires flying everywhere. <laughs> good times, good times. So the Cayman Current has um, has uh, compiled everything in one place for everybody who wants to check in on the, the three public secondary school graduations. So this is, it's, it's funny. So now, you know, the organization's about uh, a little over a year old now. So now, now I'm running into like seasonal and quarterly yeah. and annual stories. So it's, it's like a lazy way of what did I do last year? And I thought, I thought <laughs> it worked well last year. So I did, um, I've done three individual stories based on, you know, press releases and, and videos that were sent out on. Um, so I've done one for each of the schools, but then I do a, a summary, a summary story. So you have Clifton Hunter, John Gray, Layman Scott. There's a summary of what what went on in the the ceremony, who the top students were. We've got photos, photo gallery from it. I, I love and this then photo that I pulled up here too, right? Because yeah. um, when you look at this, you can actually see, you know, it's a huge gym. Parents weren't allowed. 
teachers for the most part weren't allowed. Really, it was the graduating class. So this particular photo, and I think this, I can't, my, I don't have my glasses on, but I think it was Scott Swing's photo. I feel like it really captures the essence of, of you know, what it, was like, what it was like for the students at John Gray. And as you've said, there's videos posted. You've got, this is one of the fundamentals for me of education coverage. It's just looking at students as they make their way through that process, you know, it's pretty cool. And of course, here's your ever-present, please donate to the Cayman Current, which I like quite like. No, oh, that's sign up for the mailing list. That's right. <laughs> I, no, donate, donate, that's good. Yeah. So, um, donate. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just wanted to point out that that, that photo for me really showed, gave a, a, a true sense of, you know, the impact COVID has had on the way we even celebrate some of these uh, milestones in our lives. Yeah, it's interesting. It was kind of, it was like while they were rolling out the press releases on the graduation day, you know, they had a kind of a statement from the department for, directly from Mark Ray, who was kind of trying to explain why parents and family members and it wasn't, you know, they weren't able to gather. I didn't really highlight it on the website. I meant to do more on that as well, because I think that because of this, I don't think we, we are sometimes forgetting that, look, we still have restrictions and there are still crowd limits. And even though this is a huge occasion, you know, we're still following some rules. Yeah. And so, so just kind of point that out now, because, you know, say like, you know, Mark and DES, they did realize that this, this did have an impact and there were questions and, and people, it did, it did bother some people, I suppose. So, you know, they did take, a, take the time to acknowledge those concerns and say, hey, social gathering limits, we had to abide by them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that said that, that it was still a lovely, lovely event. And if you read Patrick's articles, you can see some of the performance components for the students. They were, you were able to highlight kind of some of the successes of the students in terms of their regional tests and in general, how they're doing. But I, I, I admit that just the fact that there's so many students graduating at one time, two different schools, same week. I didn't even get to the BRAC one yet. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a milestone, if you will. And this test, this test, this ceremony usually happens a bit earlier in the year, but because of the way the exam results rolled out, it kind of had an impact on everything else, sort of, sort of a cascading effect. You know, we can only hope that next year will be a more normal year, but one of the students in there, two, actually both of the keynote speaker students at both schools, they did touch on the fact that they felt that as a result of their experience with going to school and COVID and doing the testing with COVID and all that stuff, that um, it did promote greater resiliency for them. They felt like in many respects, it was a, it was a big test for them, but a test that they feel they passed um, with flying colors. Oh, they didn't say that. I like that cliche is my favorite, so. <laughs> but they did well. And um, so that was kind of a nice moment to see as well. Yeah. Yeah. So congratulations to all the graduates. It's a big, it's a big deal. It's your first step into a larger world. Yes, man. That's another Star Wars. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Star Wars season. Yay. Okay. So I know we have some more things to talk about as well, but I wanted to make sure that we take a moment and toss to the, see, so Patrick, I forgot the name of the segment. I was going to, was it Principal's Corner, Principal's Spotlight, Talk to Principally the principal, Speaking. Principally Speaking. <laughs> I, I make things up as I go along. Or Principal's Update. Yeah, Principal's Update. So what I'm going to do right quick here is 
tossed to Patrick's interview because I was supposed to be there, but I was running around and having trouble with the internet that day. I tried really hard. I popped in, I disappeared. So hopefully none of that will make it in the final version. But let's uh, throw it to Patrick's interview now. And wait, Patrick, shouldn't you set this up before I hit this magic button? Sure. This week we interviewed Nicola Williams, who's owner and director of Sprague's Garden Preschool and Play School. Sprague's Garden Play School, uh, which is on Crew Road near the intersection of South Church and South Sound Road. And she's also the president of the Cayman Islands. I'm doing this off the top of my head. Cayman Islands Early Childhood Association, which is kind of the, the association of preschools. So she gives us both kind of uh, says what's going on at Sprogs and she, she focuses on the COVID situation and COVID testing. And then she gives a higher level perspective on what the conversations they're having generally with the preschools. So now you get to say, roll the beautiful bean footage. Yeah, roll the beautiful bean footage, April. This is uh, Patrick Brundell from the Cayman Current, and I'm being joined by our special guest, Nicola Williams, who's the owner and director of Sprague's Garden Play School. Nicola is here as part of the principal's appearances that we're trying to make a regular feature of EdBeat, and she's going to give us an update on things that are going on at her school, and then she's going to give us kind of a, a more generalized perspective, um, because in addition to running Sprague's, uh, Nicola is also the president of the Cayman Islands Early Childhood Association. So, uh, hi, how are you doing? Good, thank you. And thank you for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for hearing. So we talked a little bit before we started rolling the cameras, and I think the main topic uh, that's probably on a lot of people's minds in the schools is the COVID situation and how that's going. So uh, could you talk a little bit about how things are going at Sprague's with COVID? Yeah, obviously, when when everything first started sort of becoming more and more of an issue as there were more cases of community spread, uh, it was really challenging. The ministry has been really great in supporting us. I think that when the shift went over to the la using the lateral flow test, that really helped as far as being able to otherwise, you know, it would have been so many children and fa and families quarantining. I don't think we would have been able to continue and, and teachers as well been able to continue operating. So the lateral flow test really helped. We feel very lucky that we we did well with the number of cases. We had two teachers and two children, uh, sorry, three children with COVID. So we feel very lucky about that. And now that the, the uh, uh, restrictions have changed or the requirements have changed again to the twice weekly uh, random testing and children two and under are not being tested using lateral flows. And so that's for children under five and above the age of two. And uh, so I guess yeah. before you before you start, I, I don't think a lot of the people in the public are have been aware of this change, because yeah. to my knowledge, it wasn't announced in a press conference or widely or in documentation that I could find. But, but I, I was aware of it because I'm a parent of a child who's at nursery age at another mm -hmm. school. So just, yeah. just to, to clarify to people is for the older kids and what had been the case for some of the younger kids is basically if a, if a child tested positive in a classroom then the other or a, or a teacher, then the other members of that classroom would have to undergo the 10 days of lateral flow testing. And then, of course, if any of the other kids in the class tested positive for COVID, that 10 day period gets restarted. And so that's still the case for children five and over, yeah. but for children under five, the regulations have changed. So now these youngest go, um, so now the kids from uh, three to three and four years old, they participate in these, they call it the surveillance testing. So two yeah. times a week, they take a lateral flow test. Yeah. And if they test positive, 
they don't go to school, but the classmates continue to go to school. They don't do the 10-day lateral flow testing. They just continue with the, the twice-weekly surveillance. But the teachers test. So if the teachers are primary contact or have a child in their class, um, then the teachers test for the 10 days if they're vaccinated. Um, so that's changed a little bit that way. So it's only just the surveillance testing. Um, and then the children two and under aren't being tested at all. They're, you no, know. no. So no. yeah. Yeah. So sorry to interrupt, but I think I just wanted to make sure that was clear for folks. Yeah. And so for us, really, it's been just taking all the precautions and following the recommendations and guidelines and requirements of public health as far as mask wearing goes. We've had, we have a a really nice garden at our preschool. We're spending way more time outside, which is really great too, because the weather's changed and it's a lot cooler. Um, And so we're we know that COVID is less likely to spread outside. So we're really making use of our garden space and, and the children are really enjoying that as well. And then just keeping our groups as separate as we can as well. And so I'm really grateful to my teachers too. And they've done an incredible job of caring for the children and nurturing them, you know, through all of this and giving them, you know, because our teachers and especially with very young children, one and two year olds, very close care is, is required. The children need and deserve it. And so, and obviously children are not vaccinated. And so I, I'm impressed with how my teachers have maintained this, uh, the amazing high quality care of the children and how, you know, through this stressful time, they've, they've continued to do a really good job for the children and for our families too. And reassuring families as well is a big part of it for me too. Uh, parents worry about children who may have had time at home and and the isolation factor. But I like to reassure parents that one, children are very resilient. And if they get that attention, you know, it's it's all about having these interactions with an interested, caring adult. And if they get that at home, then, and it's shorter periods of time now, and they return to school, they, they're very resilient. They soak back up everything, the relationships and their bonds with their caregivers and so on. So the most important thing really for them is about stress. They're, they're very sensitive, especially young children to the stress around them. And so that's the important thing is to remain, you know, calm around the children and reassuring and those kinds of things. And we had talked a little bit about kind of the the differences or the things that in relation to COVID that maybe parents should think about differently when we're talking about these these the young children in in the nursery and preschool as opposed to say a thirteen or fourteen year old who's preparing for relatively high stakes testing. So I guess what's the most important thing to think about when you're when you're dealing with a young child and in this COVID situation and and possible quarantine requirements. Yeah, I, I mean, the most important thing, I mean, children, yeah, very young children, the two primary things that they need are attachment, uh, interaction, and exploration. And they form really strong bonds with their caregivers. And especially their, obviously with their parents, they have their strong attachments, but they also have strong bonds with their caregivers. And when those bonds are disrupted, we want to try and do what we can to keep that relationship going for them. And so when they return really to school um, in earlier settings, the most important thing is to give them back that interaction, you know, the social interaction, the language rich interaction, the opportunities for play and exploration. And it's very difficult to give children those things through any kind of online, or at least not in any way to the same degree versus using any kind of online platform or worksheets or work to be sent home, especially during the lockdowns. I was very aware of the fact that many of our parents, you know, people who were lucky enough to keep their jobs through it also were expected to look after very young children and work. Um, And I didn't want to add to their pressure 
by saying, oh, you need to do this activity with your child or you need to do that. So our primary focus was the bond, keeping that bond going between teachers and children and giving parents it as an option, but reassuring them that it's not necessary. This is just something, you know, that I, activities, and it was mostly connected with the Zoom circles my teachers were doing and WhatsApp calls with individual children that children could sign up for and those kinds of things. Uh, yeah, it's really about that, the social interaction, the yeah. maintaining the bonds and, and the play and exploration and the, and the community. They, they, they've lost their community, which they're very attached to as well. But it was amazing after the closure, when we returned to school, it, I, I was pointing out to my staff and parents, look how resilient these kids are. It was, it was almost like you could see them soaking it up more than they ever have before. Uh, they, they really are extraordinary at, at figuring out how to get what they need, you know, to promote their own healthy sort of growth and development. They're quite amazing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I don't always like being wrong, but in this case, I am glad that I was wrong because the last time when, whenever they started the LFT policy and, and COVID was racing through the community, I was placing bets, not literally, but I was pretty sure that this, that the Christmas break was going to get moved up a week or two or three like yeah. last year, just extended. <laughs> but they, thankfully, it looks like I'm wrong. Got about a week to go till the public schools close. And that's usually the benchmark for everybody else. So in terms of the, the Cayman Islands Early Childhood Association, which you're uh, president of, one of the things that we've, we've written about and, and talked about is how literacy is for everyone, or as most people call it, life. They had branched out their, their mandates and programs and, and been reaching into the, the preschools to promote these pre-literacy programs. And I know the Early Childhood Association was a big part of that. Uh, could you tell me about that program and what the status of it is? Yeah, so partnering with, uh, that's been a big focus of the Cayman Islands Early Childhood Association over the past year is partnering with other organizations in the community who are also doing amazing things for young children and their families. And life had more focused on more older children, elementary, especially elementary age children. And then Juliet Austin and myself met, and she's just amazing. And Erica there too. Life is doing great things. And they were interested in branching out into early childhood. And, and they're very educated, knowledgeable, driven, passionate, you know, professionals. And so this Thrive by Five or Thrive by Five early literacy program was sort of this initiative was started with Deloitte being the, the sponsor for it. And it was it's an early literacy program. It's a professional training program that also incorporates giving resources. So in the form of books to preschools and then also bringing family giving books to families and sort of a bit of a train the trainer model where we teach the teachers through professional learning and then they also share that new learning with their families. So we started the program through a series of professional workshops and then we switched to Zoom, but then we're piloting it in one preschool. And we've now decided to postpone until January just because of everything that's going on. We know that, and I know firsthand that preschools are trying to get through this time. And it's, it's you know, we want to get them, we want the most from this program because it is such an incredible opportunity. And the teachers were amazing too, really engaged and excited about it. So we want to wait until we can focus in more on this and, and, and let's hope that some of the stressors we've been experiencing have been alleviated in January. So that's a really exciting initiative. And then the association, all of our meetings have gone to Zoom. But last meeting, our, our last, uh, our monthly meeting for November, it was an open forum. It was really great for all early childhood practitioners, directors, all of our members to just talk about COVID-19, the implications for it, things that they're doing, questions that they have. It was actually really great. We had a big attendance 
and it was just really nice to be able to talk to other people that are going through the same things and what strategies they're doing and so on. So yeah, the Cayman Island Association, unfortunately, the meetings have gone to Zoom, which I, I'm very much a face-to-face person, but we've, we've got to do what we've got to do. So, But still, really, those sessions are going really well, especially the one, our November meeting. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for uh, appearing on the show. You know, I really appreciate, you know, putting yourself out here to this, this brutal interrogation. <laughs> you know, I think it's important because, you know, I sit in my little office all day and I talk on the phone and every now and then I make field trips and read reports and things like that. But, you know, in my opinion, the the principals and the owners of the schools are, the, are really, to me, one of the best perspectives to get on how the education system is working because you do have a higher level view than, say, strictly within the classroom but you also are close enough to that so that you know what's going on. And of course, a lot of principals are in the classroom almost on a daily basis and, and, you know, as a rule, have been classroom teachers themselves. So I think they have, you know, really the best perspective on what's going on. Important to be down into the, in the classrooms. I love to know what's going on and have a frequent presence down there. And I also love to be with the children. So I'm, 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 you can't, it's hard for me to, to leave the classrooms because it's it's just so wonderful to be with children. You want to remember what you're doing and why. And the families have been great through through COVID-19 as well. There's been a lot of mutual understanding and about this because it's a difficult time. So it's just, you know, the schools just come together, uh, parents, teachers, and and owners just to, to get through this time together. And I think it, it's brought out a lot of good things as well. But yeah, for sure, being on the floor and, and seeing what's happening with children and teachers and so on is really important, I think, for me to be able to do my job well. Great. Well, th- thanks a lot. So once again, if, if somebody missed missed the ID, uh, this is Nicola Williams, who's the director and owner of Sprague's Garden Play School. And she's also the president of the Cayman Islands Early Childhood Association. And once again, thanks a lot for appearing on the show. And we'll have to have you on again in the future. And I know that we've talked, we've talked a lot about, you know, possibly participating in an event coming up and talking about early literacy programs and things like that. And I assure you and the audience that that is really high up on our agenda for next year. Yeah, I'm really excited about that initiative. Well, and thank you too, Patrick, for all the amazing work you're doing too, keeping everyone informed. It's really important for educators to come together and for the community to be informed about education and discuss issues related to education. So I really appreciate everything you're doing too. Okay, so we're back, and Patrick, quite an insightful interview. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Patrick's like, I was fantastic. Yeah, really, yeah many, many thanks to Nicola for um, uh, stepping forward and participating, and we're hoping this becomes, you know, continues to be a recurring thing in the new year. Yeah, it's really great to hear the perspective of the principals as well. So um, not just the, 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 the association component, but just, hey, what's going on in your universe? You know, what happens in schools for many of us is behind closed doors, if you will. So it's great to, you know, hear what they're thinking. It, it, it just creates a greater, for me, a sense of comfort that we have an idea that it's not just a job somebody's knocking out every day. You know, they're really thinking about where they are, where they're going, and what's going to be best for our kids in the future. All right, so we have some time left. Tell, tell me what we're talking about next. Well, a cu- couple things. One, one's a real quick one. Um, and if people will recall, more than seven months ago, there were some, I don't want to say scandalous, but high-profile high reports of allegations of, a, of alleged misconduct by staff members towards students at Red Bay Primary School. And as we, you know, the standard caveat is uh, we haven't repeated those allegations, et cetera, et cetera, even though they were reported elsewhere. But kind of kind of every month or two, I check in with the Ministry of Education because 
because of the allegations, they called in the MASH unit, which is the Child Protective Family Protective Services. Uh, what is it, the Department uh, of Children and Family Services, services. and the police uh, formed the MASH unit. So, so they got involved and there's a law enforcement investigation. A number of staff were, were taken out of the school and assigned elsewhere in different roles or whatever and checked in last Friday and the investigation is still ongoing. Uh, so so we'll check yeah, in again seven, in another month. Months, yeah. um, so I guess just to put the timeline on it, the allegations were, were revealed more than seven months ago. The long time principal, Vicki Frederick, was no, is no longer the principal right now. And they've got a man, a man named Ryan Dale, uh, who was the deputy principal and has been deputy principal at other public schools as well. He's been the acting principal since then. And uh, the government won't give us any more information <laughs> until the investigation is concluded. And the investigation is not concluded. It's still ongoing. So we'll keep, we'll keep our finger on the pulse. You know, the, the, the interesting thing that the media, I'm the media today on this one. You're not the media. I'm the media. You know, there's the media, the media with a short attention span media. So what happens is, is that you are always gunning after the shiny new story and do not consistently go back and follow up on items like this. And this is where Patrick, the education focused media, which you didn't, you would have done this anyway. It will go away if no one yeah. asks these questions. So yeah. you, you have to, you have to keep following up on it over time. Otherwise, it, it, we never really find out what happened, whether there was something wrong or not, whether there's systemic changes need to be made or not. Yeah. And so it is important, I think, to continue to follow up. And that's why seven months later, you know, Patrick is still checking in to say, hey, where are we? What's going on? Yeah. And, and also it's important because, because we do this to be, you know, there's a sense of fairness and transparency and trying to do right. Just, you know, the students, of course, and the parents, but but also the staff members and ones who either weren't implicated or the ones who were, whether it turns out that something inappropriate did happen or if it didn't happen, you know, and it, and it was, you know, if the whole thing turns out to be false, it's equally important that that truth comes out as if everything that was alleged was true, because it, it's really bad for somebody if they're falsely accused of something and then it kind of goes away. <laughs> and you never get the but public exoneration. You can't hang yeah. over your head forever unless yeah. somebody finds that out. Yeah, and that is one of the the important roles, you know, of a journalist. Frankly, okay. So we've touched on Red Bay, and I feel like there was another subject. There's one more. I knew there was something else. I was like, oh, and it's God. great news. It's the pandemic, but <laughs> the pandemic isn't so great. But what How is great? How the great news? Wait a minute. Yeah, I can segue. But what is great? is is the the Cayman Current has had the the privilege and the opportunity to publish a series of uh, regional investigative journalism stories on COVID-19 in the region. And as you said, we're laser focused on education. But in this instance, we've broken our own rule. So this doesn't have anything to do with education. But I guess the background on it is the uh, there's a nonprofit in Puerto Rico, which is one of the few nonprofit journalism organizations in the Caribbean besides the current, <laughs> they, they're a lot bigger than us and they've been around a lot longer. And, and they're, they're a little bit, they have a, bit, a wider scope and mandate and funding than we do. But it's the Center for Investigative Journalism. And in, and in Spanish, it's El Centro de Periodismo Investigativo. The CPI. Yes, yes. <clears throat> taco, un taco. So that's my Spanish is all built around ordering tacos. Your Spanish uh, is built around food, just admit it. Yeah. So it's this, they call it the CPI. So right. CPI had, they, they, they 
did a like a seminar and a conference with journalists around the region. Uh, one of those lucky journalists was Kayla Young, who has since come on as the current journalist, became a current journalist. So, so Kayla was one of the reporters who was selected to participate in a series of collaborative investigations um, where they have teams of reporters from different islands reporting on um, the two topics they picked is first COVID-19 and second is um, sustainability. And Kayla is on the sustainability side of it. So this first series coming out about COVID-19 in the region, we're, we're going to be publishing this. And then when, when Kayla's part of the project comes out, we're going to publish that. So we published two stories so far, and I think they're really good. They got really good visuals and they have professional photographers, if you can imagine. Um, like us. And, and they kind of surveyed how different territories, including Cayman, responded to COVID-19, how their vaccination rates were going and the vaccination and campaign, vaccination campaigns, and then how that boiled out to different mortality rates in the region. Mm-hmm. And then the second story focuses on Puerto Rico. And I, I think it's interesting because they look at excess, excess deaths. So it's like every year you look back at the past 50 years and you can predict just about how many people are expected to die. And then you look at COVID and this number of people died. So, right. so they look at not only people who died when they had COVID, but people who died of other reasons. And what they found kind of overall is that some of these reasons like mental health or uh, reasons like suicide, depression, or even things like uh, Alzheimer's disease. And uh, more people are dying from these other causes than, and I think one of the other ones is cardiovascular disease, mm. than, than would have been expected in years past. So even if people die from COVID, they died because of the circumstances created by the pandemic yeah. and lockdowns and things like that. So, so it's so a really you, good word. Yeah. So if you take the, for example, the mental health example, or even just the people who were locked in their houses for six, you know, six months or eight months because of COVID restrictions, there's depression, there's, you know, just sort of all kinds of things that, that affect you. But, you know, just the, the idea that back to your, your, your main point um, with excess Let's deaths, for example, I'm trying to be serious for five whole seconds. And then my brain kicks in and diverts me off track again, because, you know, serious can be sad, but it's also important. So, you know, for example, there were mental health issues related to people being in lockdown, right? And so, yes, COVID may not have directly caused a death, but depression that is exacerbated by the circumstances around COVID suppression can lead to that. So I think that kind of work that they're doing is important because it, it again, gives us some perspective. Um, Sometimes it's not the thing itself that you have to be concerned about alone. You have to look at overall what's happening and the impact that that can have on folks. And if nothing else, you know, it gives us an opportunity. Sorry, I moved my whole set around here. Living room. Yeah, um, it gives us- How did the whole room move? It's great. <laughs> I've got magic skills. But the the value in in looking at some of this today may not always help us with this particular crisis or pandemic or whatever. But the the knowledge that we glean from that can be helpful for us as we go forward making future decisions during, you know, whatever the next huge crisis may be. Now, pandemic's not over yet, right? But, I, you know, I think you learn what? lessons from it. I know, not over yet. Yeah, they, um, one, of, one of the examples, for example, in the story is about the cardiovascular illness. And um, one doctor who's quoted in there talks about how there was this shift to telemedicine which is, you know, the doctor's on one side of the screen and you're on the other side of the screen. And he was saying, like, listen, diagnosing cardiovascular disease and treating it, it doesn't work with telemedicine. You should be there with your hands on and 
you know, feeling pulses and you need to be there in person. I'm not a doctor. I don't know if he's right or not, but that's, but I, that's what he pointed to. This, this sort of medicine isn't good enough yet for this kind of condition. Um, and it, it, some of it's even just the technology, for example. I mean, look at the range. And, and if, you've been, if you've been watching NB, you know I've been experimenting with all kinds of different things, high-end cameras, low-end cameras, phones, laptops, it's different audio sources. And for, you know, even without that physical interaction, the lower the quality, the signal, the picture, the sound, the more nuances you start to miss. So if it is that way in just uh, interviewing people and having a conversation online, how much more so you can imagine it would be if you're talking about someone's health. And even I have a friend who's a psychiatrist, and one of the things she was saying was that for her, it was difficult sometimes, you know, she'd be, inter- she'd be talking to someone and she's seeing this much of them, but some of the, 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 the other things that she looks for aren't visible. They were off screen. So it might be someone fidgeting with their feet or, you know, comforting themselves in, in some fashion, right? She said she couldn't read the whole person the way she would do in person. So not that it was useless, it just created new, new challenges and things that maybe they hadn't thought about before um, really, really came, you know, into the spotlight because of this. Yeah, it's different. I had to do, uh, I came off a knee surgery and was doing physical therapy pretty intensely uh, multiple times a week when the lockdown happened. And we said, oh, we'll just use telemedicine because we're doing the same stuff and you use that. But internet connection, sound delays, software not work. It just didn't work. Yeah. Like I did, did a couple sessions and then, you know, it was just, listen, listen, send me what I need to do in writing and, and I'll, I'll do, do my it best. Yeah. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. So I, you know, it, it, it is one of the, the reasons to sort of press forward as well with it. Just because something is possible doesn't mean that it's in the best possible form yet for the applications that we would like to use it for. And I, I can take this also back to a teaching example as well. In, in while uh, many kids, you know, had internet connections, it, it didn't mean that those internet connections were of the level they needed to be in order to truly participate in their online classes. They might get the camera going, but then there wasn't quite enough internet to also open the Google document that they need, you know, or whatever it may have been. And so those kinds of things cause delays and there's a flow sometimes in a, in a classroom, right? Even an online classroom, there's a flow that goes on. And if that is interrupted by all these bits and pieces of things, you, I, and I saw it, the teachers can lose focus, the kids lose focus. It becomes more about which button to push sometimes than about that, you know, exciting moment of insight. So not all bad or all good. I just, I saw some problems and I can see why that, can see why doctors would, would have a challenge with it as well. Yeah, I'd say there's like the, the cutting edge of innovation and then there's the bleeding edge. Oh, and the bleeding edge means you're so far on the cutting edge that there's some issues. <laughs> I've got to go Google this after because I should have heard this before. This sounds like a thing that's just for me. So, Patrick. No, um, my, my son, who's nine, I, we were watching Nightmare Before Christmas today, and he had never heard of the boogeyman. And what? he's like, come on, boogeyman. <laughs> like, B, I'm going to have to Google that. B O O O. Not that kind of boogie. <laughs> and I, where do I fail as a parent that I haven't scared them with the boogeyman? I don't know, man. But right now I'm scaring people because I have just discovered that there are Christmas backgrounds in our program. And so, you know, as we wrap things up so that I can let the dogs out of their captivity. So, all right. Any last words before we, you know, go off and do the Christmas things that yeah. need to be done? I have stuff to wrap, even though it's December 12th. I just want you to know I was ahead of the game this year. Good job. Uh, no, just ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Thanks what did for you tell uh, me? 
this is an education in the best possible way <laughs> as um, it should be as it should be. Yeah, no, thank, thanks for, uh, you know, how long have we been doing this now? So 26 months of EdBeat Plus. I have done something uh, for six months. That's yeah. impressive. Well, it's, I just want to note that we started this off as what, a 10 minute update? Yeah, that was no, the we idea. said five. We're like, we're going to talk for five minutes and then it'll be done. It's <laughs> quick, we'll just quick update. highlights. Bam, that bam. did not work out. Mm -mm. Like 1920s fast talking journalists. Patrick was like, I don't know if I can be on camera either. And I was like, look, Patrick, I'm not going to comb my hair, so it'll be fine. Like, it's yeah. okay. Yeah, we keep our promises. Mostly. <laughs> mostly. Anyway, Merry Christmas, everybody. And we haven't set the date for our return, but we'll tell you as fast as we can. And of course, if Patrick has some compelling breaking education news between now and the end of the year, you know, we can pop back in and do a quick, very, very special edition. Ed Beat. I was going to say Cayman Current said beat, but then I was like, wait, no, it's Cayman Life and Cayman Current. I don't know. So, yeah, maybe. Well, Patrick's like, what is she doing? All right, hang yeah, on. Is, it, is, it, is the year over yet? <laughs> it's not over yet. Anyway, Patrick, thank you so much. It's been great. And um, I do encourage everybody to check out caymancurrent.org. There's tons of good stuff on there all the time. Um, and not only, if you haven't checked it out, not only is it original reporting from Patrick and Kayla, but also really good roundup of some of the other things that are going on, making headlines locally. And he takes a look at education stuff, I mean, internationally as well. So there's really a lot there. And if you're a parent or an educator or even a student for that matter, it's definitely worth adding this to your RSS feed. Ah, because I'm a nerd. <laughs> it is. It's very good. And, and um, I really appreciate the work you're doing. And I know that lots of other people do too. So thank you so much for doing this, Patrick. I know it's not always the easiest thing to do a startup like this, but more power to you for it. Yeah. Thanks, April. All right. Merry Christmas, everybody.